an important breaking news today, reporting on the January 6th committee investigation. Multiple sources now tell CNN there are hours-long gaps in presidential records turned over to the panel. Sources say the White House call logs, phone call logs from Insurrection Day are blank from the time the president returned from his speech on the Ellipse until he gave a Rose Garden speech hours later, in between, of course, prior to storm the U.S. Capitol. These are important records that are a key part of the investigation by the January 6th Select Committee. And you'll remember this is information that they fought in court to obtain. It was a court case that went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it was something that the former president and his lawyers desperately wanted to keep secret. Well, we're now being told by multiple sources that have reviewed this initial tranche of, of, of records that the phone records from the day of January 6th and also a supplemental diary that uh, outlines the president's movements on that day uh, show a period of time from around the time he came back from the White House until the time that he gave that speech from the Rose Garden uh, where he does not take or receive any phone calls. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he didn't take phone calls. In fact, there are reported examples of phone calls that he either made or took during that period of time. One to the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, another to Senator, T Senator Tommy Tuberville that came through Senator Mike Lee. But the point here is on these official White House records, which are supposed to be the keeper of this information during his administration, that period of time shows no record of any calls. So that does make the work of the January 6th committee just a little bit more complicated. They now have to figure out what the president was up to during that period of time as they try and paint the picture of this piece of history and exactly the role that the president played. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. With time running out before the midterm elections, the January 6th committee is realizing that its ability to hold those responsible for the insurrection that day rests on what it can get done before the end of the year. After that, should the GOP retake the majority, all bets are off. For Democrats, it means adopting a more aggressive posture than is custom for a traditional oversight committee. To do so, the committee is borrowing techniques from federal prosecutions, employing aggressive tactics typically used against fucking mobsters and terrorists as it seeks to break through stonewalling from former President Trump and his allies and develop evidence that could prompt a criminal case. What we've learned in recent weeks uh, from the committee and its investigations is that none of this was simply bombastic talk. There were plans. Uh, that Dan Goldman just laid out in visceral detail, plans to overthrow the election and also the will of the American people and essentially end uh, hundreds of years of democracy as we know it. The New York Times this week took a fascinating look into the inner workings of the committee in what its members see as the best opportunity to hold Trump and his team accountable. The committee, which has no authority to pursue criminal charges, is using what powers it has in expansive ways, all in hopes of pressuring Attorney General Merrick B. Garland, for God's sakes, fucking do something, to use the Justice Department to investigate and prosecute them. What can this committee do, given the running out the clock and the stonewalling that it continues to get from some people around uh, the Trump orbit? And, and what your reporting describes is very much what I'm used to as a, as a business journalist, when, when you see the government go after a company where they start and they just move their way up and they figure out ways to get to central characters, even if the central characters won't participate. Is fascistic politics, which has been set loose by the violent insurrection. And 
the political scientists will tell you that uh, the best indicator of a successful coup coming is a recent failed coup where the coup plotters yes. get to diagram the weaknesses in the current regime. So we've got to map that out for democracy and then repair the walls so it doesn't happen to us. The panel's investigation is being run by a former U.S. attorney and the top investigator brought into focus on Mr. Trump's inner circle is also a former U.S. attorney. The panel has now hired more than a dozen other former federal prosecutors as well. If Pence came, we're gonna drag motherfuckers through the streets. You fucking politicians are gonna get fucking drugged through the streets. Yeah. Because we're not gonna have our fucking shit stolen. Because this is the second fucking revolution. We're here to take it back from you. Cut their freaking head off. Cut their head off. According to the Times, the committee has interviewed, I can't believe it, more than 475 witnesses and issued more than 100 subpoenas, including broad ones to banks as well as telecommunications and social media companies. Some of the subpoenas have swept up the personal data of Trump, family members, and allies, local politicians, and at least one member of Congress. Representative Jim Jordan, the Republican of Ohio. Though no subpoena has been issued for Mr. Jordan yet, his text messages and calls have shown up in communications with Mark Meadows, the former White House Chief of Staff, and in a call with Mr. Trump on the morning of January 6, 2021. It is not a far thought, Wolf, to think that someday some militia shows up somewhere to do something and then some counter militia shows up and truly at that point, that's how you end up in a civil war. I never would say that we would ever have ended in that position, but I now believe it is a, a real possibility that we have to be wide-eyed as we walk into so we don't have that happen again. And anybody that thinks that sounds cool or they get to play dress up because you know they somehow think it's gonna be fun to go out and camp with their buddies and have a civil war, there are people that really think that. Well, you know, the four or five heart medicines you're on, Walgreens isn't going to have them available when this place fails. So, uh, by and, hearing uh, you, and that's how serious this is. Armed with reams of telephone records and metadata, the committee has used link analysis, a data mapping technique that former FBI agents say was key to identifying terrorist networks in the years after the September 11th attacks. The FBI said it used a similar tactic last month to identify the seller of a gun to a man in Texas who took the hostages at a synagogue. Faced with at least 16 Trump allies who have signaled that they will not fully cooperate with the committee, investigators have taken a page out of organized crime prosecutions and quietly turned at least six lower-level Trump staff members into witnesses who have now provided information about their boss's activities. The committee has done, uh, it's taken an aggressive stance for several reasons. One of them is that a lot of the attempts to hold Donald Trump accountable, whether it was the Mueller investigation, the two impeachments, the other congressional investigations that have gone on, those all, while they did political damage to Trump and he ultimately lost the, the election, Donald Trump still looms and has not changed his behavior and continues to push, push his brand of Trumpism down into the country in ways that really concerns Democrats and anti-Trump Republicans. So they're taking the most aggressive stance that we've seen in any recent congressional investigation and going out and getting phone records that's sweeping up personal data of a lot of different people. 
and they're using link analysis, a tool that the FBI used in the years after the September 11th attacks to identify terrorist networks to see who was talking to who. They've looked at the, the org chart of the White House and of who was around the president. And they've said, okay, well, if Mark Meadows isn't going to talk to us, and if this, this other senior official is going to talk to us, who were the aides that were right underneath them? And who were the aides underneath them? And what did they know? Because they noticed when they went down the ladder, in the same way that you go down the ladder if you were looking at a mob organization, those people can be more vulnerable. They may be less loyal to the person at the top. The committee is also considering granting immunity to key members of Trump's inner circle who have invoked their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination as a way of pressuring them to testify. The committee's aggressive approach carries with it another obvious risk, that it could fail to turn up compelling new information about Trump's efforts to hold on to power after his defeat or to make a persuasive case for a Justice Department prosecution. Mr. Trump survived years of scrutiny by the special counsel in the Russia investigation, Robert S. Mueller III, and two impeachments. Despite a swirl of new investigations since he left office, the former president remains the dominant force in Republican politics. The committee is doing this, to your point, for, for to one, to get to the bottom of what happened on January 6th and everything in the lead up to it, but also because they are trying to come up with as much damning evidence as possible to pressure Merrick Garland. They see this as their best opportunity to try and get the Justice Department to do something. Garland has given no indication, there's been no public indication that that, that he's investigating Trump or that, that the investigation of January 6th is headed in that direction. And what the January 6th committee, if it, if it could have its way, it would develop as much, much damning information as possible and be able to tie it in, you know, in good faith, in a good faith argument to the criminal code and say to the Justice Department, okay, we went out and did this investigation. Here is what we found. These are the criminal laws that we think have been violated, and you should do something. And they would probably make something like that public. And that would, at the very least, I think, force the Justice Department to at least publicly address the question of what they're doing in regards to Donald Trump. Nevertheless, its members have openly discussed what criminal laws Mr. Trump and his allies may have violated and how they might recommend that the Justice Department investigate him. Such a step could put considerable additional pressure on Merrick Garland, who has not given any specific public indication that the department is investigating Trump or it would even support prosecuting him. If I run and if I win, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly. We will give them pardons. Robert Palmer threw a wooden plank at police, then sprayed a fire extinguisher at officers, then threw the empty fire extinguisher at the line of police. We will give them pardons. You can see them picking up a baton and feeding the officers repeatedly. We will give them pardons. Scott Fairland was caught on video shoving and then punching a DC police officer. We will give 
them pardons. It shows an individual with metal knuckles to repeatedly beat on the officers. We will give them pardons. George Tamio sprayed chemicals into the eyes of police officers twice. First hitting U.S. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, then into the eyes of another female police officer. We will give them pardons, pardons, pardons. As the House investigation was gaining momentum late last year, the committee's vice chairwoman, Representative Liz Cheney, a Republican of Wyoming, read from the criminal code to describe a law she believed could be used to prosecute Trump for obstructing Congress as it sought to certify the electoral college count of his defeat. Ms. Cheney and the other Republican on the committee, Representative Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, were censored by the Republican National Committee on Friday for their participation in the investigation. The whole condemnation of Cheney and Kinzinger is an Orwellian exercise designed to protect a cult-like cohesion around a party now committed to defending a lie. And that's the real deal here. Because the reason cults hunt down heretics is to try to make an example of them, to discourage other people from thinking for themselves and speaking their mind. So their insistence is a measure of how scared they really are. And here's the thing, cults end. Truth prevails eventually, facts matter. The main issue facing the committee is not a lack of legal firepower or even a lack of political will but rather the electoral calendar. The GOP has stated under no uncertain terms that should they retake the majority in the House, they will fucking disband the committee. This was underscored by last week's RNC resolution to censor House members Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney for their participation in that committee. The GOP has operationalized their gaslighting to make martyrs out of the January 6th rioters by casting them as political prisoners and their rampage as legitimate political discourse. There is no plan B for Democrats here, folks. They must deliver their report and their referrals for prosecution before November. The failure to do so will be catastrophic. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is none other than Malcolm Nance. A return guest to the show, Nance is impeccably sourced within the intelligence community and can speak to matters of national security with unflinching honesty and rare empathy. In addition, he has watched with growing alarm as an armed extremist insurgency has grown and flourished inside the United States. He predicted some two months before the January 6th attack that Trump would start a political, paramilitary insurgency to seize American democracy. That insurgency has now grown and metastasized. His upcoming book, They Want to Kill Americans, The Militias, Terrorists, and the Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency is forthcoming, and it will tell the ongoing story of how this began and where it's headed. Nance joins me today from Kiev, where he has traveled to gain an on-the-ground perspective of what's happening with the Russian troop buildup and Putin's potential invasion. All of this comes back to Donald Trump, though, from his appeasement of the Russian dictator to the GOP's love affair with authoritarianism. Last week's announcement by Trump that he will pardon insurrectionists and his calls for massive protests in cities where he is now under criminal investigation spotlights the imminent threat of a second insurrection, much, much worse than what happened on January 6th. 
All this and more on Mea Culpa. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Malcolm, in your upcoming book, They Want to Kill Americans, you write about the continued domestic security threat posed by Donald Trump and recently reminded readers that 62 days before January 6th, you personally warned that Trump would start a political paramilitary insurgency to seize American democracy. Now, in light of his recent comments promising to pardon insurrectionists while threatening violence in major American cities where he's now under criminal investigation, how much further along is Trump in building this insurgency? You know, gra- glad to be here, Michael. And I hate to say it, way further along than even I thought I was predicting. Um, I I thought that after the January 6th, you know, insurrection, the rebellion against the country, their attempt to dismantle democracy, I I really thought for a very short time there, we had a window to shame these people with the acts that they did. Uh, I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post on the 17th of January saying that you've got to shame them. You have to call them insurrectionists, terrorists rebels and anything but patriot. You have to call into question why they did what they did, when they did what they did, and for whom they did what they did. That lasted about six weeks after the insurrection. Then we started seeing the Republican Party fall back on Donald Trump as the person who calls all the shots in the party. And the first point of talk that we started seeing was the insurrectionists themselves wonder if they were going to be, you know, as we were leading up to the inauguration, are they going to be pardoned by Trump and that, you know, Trump would get them all off the hook because they were there doing this for them, which, of course, as you know, personally, the man does nothing for nobody, right, except himself. So, of course, he he pardoned no one. Correct. Pardoned no one. Um, But Again, the the strength of this cult is so strong that about eight weeks in, uh, by the end of February, early March, it became clear the entire Republican Party was going to flip. And this is what I had warned about when I, I had said this on Bill Maher's show the previous November, that there's going to be a political and paramilitary insurgency. All, all in Insurgencies are essentially the ability of an opposition force to fight, uh, you know, and take their arguments from the halls of power and move it into the streets, whether it's through populist uprising, whether it's through, um, you know, street action with thugs or guerrilla warfare uh, in some way, shape or form or rebellions in various provinces. All of these things were not only possible, it was becoming clear by the time of the insurrection that this was not only going to happen, but it was going to happen quite possibly over a generation. And that Donald Trump would not be the last gasp of the Republican Party. He would, in fact, be the first breath to scream that they need to overthrow the United States government and in doing so, take the mantle that they were the patriots, and this was 1776, and they were having, as some of them were saying, the second American revolution. They had this in their heads. They have it even worse now. This last year has been a disaster. 
And it has two parents, this disaster. Besides Donald Trump and the Republican Party, the Democratic Party is at fault as well. And I will criticize them for this. We are now staring down the end of American democracy. And we thought the 11th, you know, the ninth inning was Donald Trump losing in 2020. We are well into extra innings. And it's sort of like, instead of using a baseball analogy, this is more like soccer, where in sort of this sudden death overtime where one goal wins the game and the Republicans have the ball. They talked about it. Joe Biden talked about it. And it immediately ended that week, all of this talk. The media is only picking up on it uh, because some voices are putting it out there. But they refuse to carry the story that American democracy is not only under attack, it's on its last breath. And the Republicans, they feel victory. Steve Bannon is calling for a 40-seat majority to, to essentially say that they will never again relinquish power in this government and they will, they will break every one of the previous laws by engineering new laws that will make them a fascist autocracy forever. So I took great pleasure when Fox News and, you know, and the rest of them in the last couple of weeks were saying, wow, Malcolm Nance says American democracy is ending. And they were laughing on television. But that's what they were saying just, a, you know, a, a week ago that Joe Biden is destroying American democracy. This is real. It's not funny. You know, what's amazing is I knew Donald Trump very well. I know Donald Trump very well because Sadly, I was by his side for over a decade. So when I made my prediction before the House Oversight Committee that there would never be a peaceful transfer of power when he loses, people started saying, oh, you're like Nostradamus. You called it two and a half years in advance. You don't have that same relationship with Donald. So I'm kind of curious, what gave you that feeling? Because you stated a prediction that unfortunately is coming to light. Very much like mine. But then again, mine isn't really a prediction. It's more, I sort of know the fucking animal for who and what it is, right? So you sit there, you stick your hand into a, you know, into a snake pit, right? I don't care if you've been feeding the snakes for years. You, you put your hand in there. There's a better than likely chance somebody could predict you're going to get bit. Right. What gave you your idea for the prediction? Unlike you, I mean, you were, you were... You, you were next to the, the, the autocrat himself. You saw how he handled himself. You saw how he behaved. Yes, Malcolm, I know. I know, Malcolm. I was knee-deep. I, I know. I was knee-deep <laughs> into the horse shit. I get it. But, no. but you were not. And yet, you still have a prediction, which is right on. I did the reverse. I looked at the base and what the base were saying. Now, you got to remember, I come from the U.S. intelligence community, my principal agency was the National Security Agency. We listen to what people say, how they say it, what they mean to say when they say it, and what they're hiding when they're lying to their wife and calling their mistress, right? Well, monitoring right-wing communications over the last four years, it became very clear that the base itself, the thing that was motivating Donald Trump, was that this man was the leader of their tribe, not a political party, all right? The political party had to follow along with them and was given permission to be 
you know, the, the, the racist white nationalists that they always wanted to be. This is tribal. And when that tribe understood that what Donald Trump was saying was what they wanted to hear and he him adulation, it became this cycle of self-fulfilling prophecy. He could be as rude as he wants, as obnoxious as he wants. He didn't care what the news media thought. So long as his base, the people who had guns, money, influence, who weren't poor, there was a segment that supported, but he actually has essentially a broad section of the white middle class in America that support him. The, I believe the median income was like, a, you know, between 87 and $100,000, the kind of people that followed him. But he understood from his WWE world just what the Walmart shopper who would vote for him wanted. I watched them and I monitored how they, they, they adored Trump and realized they would literally do anything. And if that meant kill people, they would kill people. And we had many examples of that during his tenure, right? Caesar Sayoc mailing uh, 15 pipe bombs to every person in the Democratic Party. And George Soros, because he's Jewish, therefore he must be part of the Jewish cabal. Um, the massacre in you know, the Temple of Life in, uh, in Pittsburgh, the massacre at the synagogue in you know, Poway, uh, California, near San Diego, the massacre of the Latinos, Americans, uh, in the Walmart in Texas. Every one of these could be traced to Trump's own words. His own words. Agreed. And agreed. And that's why I agree with you 100% that the Democrats are not doing nearly enough. And I'm very critical on this podcast of Merrick Garland, all of my listeners, and I, I want to thank them all because, you know, we have a great listener base here, but they hear me say this often. We're very critical of Merrick Garland. We're very critical of Kamala Harris, and we're very critical of Joe Biden. And while I will sing certain praises for him, including the um, extra, you know, extra, um, extraction of all of these folks from Afghanistan, I consider that to be a victory. I, I believe also the way that he's handling the COVID pandemic, trying to get inoculation into the arms of these red-stated Republican fools that believe in Trump. What bothers me the most is that Biden is not even fighting for his own self-interest. You know that Trump is going to be a thorn in your ass. He can't help it. And I've used this analogy before. It's like in the movie The Dark Knight. Some men just want to see the world burn. You, Malcolm, did not vote for Donald Trump for 2020. And therefore, I would rather see the country burn and die than to see it succeed. That's just who he is as an individual. And we see this with these GOP members becoming more and more emboldened to try to be right. more Trumpy. They're trying to take on this cult of Trumpism so that they too can attract these same ridiculous individuals that believe, you know, that they have the right to take a life because their Fuhrer says that they should. I mean, just look as an example. Right. Um, Madison Cawthorn, right, Both from... Republican North Carolina. This is an asshole that turns around and says, 
literally says it out, out loud, has no qualms about it. It's not even that you know it's fucking wrong, so you keep it to yourself, but you're going to do it anyway. This guy is out front and center making statements that the January 6th committee dilemma is that if they don't disband it, that they're going to turn it on the Democrats when the House changes. That's a fucking out-and-out right threat. That's what Donald does. But they do it in a way that is mob-like. You know, they're not turning around and saying, we're going to tell our supporters to go to your house and burn it down with you in it. That's not what they're saying. We're going to turn it on you. So they're trying to, they're trying to play right. with the psyche of the Democrats. Why? Well, to ensure that, what, Merrick Garland doesn't open up an investigation into these actions. I mean, funny thing, though, and then, I'm gonna, then I really want your opinion on it. Sure. I, I always talk about, for example, Ted Lieu and Hakeem Jeffries. Right. They penned July 24th of 2020 a letter to Michael Horowitz, the OIG for the Justice Department calling for an uh, investigation into the unconstitutional remand of me back to prison, which is not just about me. It's about our democracy, democracy in peril, and almost like a, um, it's like a test for how far they can get away with certain things. Right. To this day, there's no investigation. So the fact that even if Madison Cawthorn didn't say anything, there's a better than likely chance that even if... Ted Lieu, Hakeem Jeffries, or any of the other members of the Democratic Party turn around and send a letter to Horowitz to open up an investigation, even though that he's responsible now to answer, not to the corrupt Bill Barr, but to, but to Merrick Garland. They're still not going to do it because the Democrats are sitting with their thumbs up their ass waiting for, oh, if we wait long enough, maybe this shit will just stop. Well, guess what, guys? It's not. No, you're absolutely right. And let me tell you something. Madison Cawthorn, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Lauren Boberts, who are now the superstars of the Republican Party. They're the superstars. They will be, if we lose, I mean, and we being independent Republicans like I used to be, right? Uh, I'm a Democrat now because I'm like, with Colin Powell, I'm so far to the left because I'm a normal person. I just come out Democrat. Independents, Democrats, these people will be the leadership of the House of Representatives. A woman who's got her GED while running for Congress, another woman who believed in that the storm would genocide all the Democrats, a kid who lied left and right, claiming he went to the Naval Academy or was accepted at a Naval Academy and got into an accident that crippled him, who is now threatening to use violence to murder his political enemies and threatening retribution against other members of the House of Representatives, welcome to the government you choose. The reason it's being, it will be chosen is because the Democratic Party's urgency of now is not existent. They, you know, I hear the House leadership, I love them, God bless them, but they all want to be nice about this. The Republican Party uses raw, pure power. When they get into power, they identify the powers. They execute what they can with those powers. The Democrats could have an independent special counsel investigating Donald Trump, investigating the activities that took place under Bill Barr. They don't. They don't. They don't even push for it. And when they do, they send a nice letter. Um, you know, the president of the United States could be out there not one day 
talking about voting rights, but every day, putting the pressure on. You know, Joe Biden, God love him. He's the kind of guy who will not go to West Virginia and say, we're just not going to earmark any money to West Virginia since you don't think that it needs anything. Or Wisconsin, like Ron Johnson, when he said he doesn't need any jobs and put political pressure on those individuals to maintain voting rights or get rid of the filibuster. And so you get people like you yeah, get it's, people it's like, gross. Um, yeah, I know. And so we don't use power. But let me tell you something. We are in the last inning. We're in the last nine months of this game. And if this thing doesn't turn around, uh, if there isn't some major cataclysm, uh, I suspect we'll be living in a fascist autocracy this time next year. Yeah, I mean, well, it's not just, you know, you got Matt Gates, a a guy who's now being investigated for child sef- sex trafficking. And then you have guys like, um, what, what's his name? Uh, Drew Ferguson from Georgia, right? Who when asked, the deputy whip, they asked him, what do you think will happen to the select committee under a Republican majority? And the first response out of this asshole's mouth, there won't be one, right? I don't think it'll be called the January 6th committee. And that was another guy who did it, this guy from Colorado, uh, Ken right. Buck. This is out of control. And this is really, this is really very damaging you know, to our democracy uh, and the future of this country. But I want to ask you this, Malcolm. In the warped, disinformation-addled mindset of today's GOP, the Capitol insurrection was good and justified, and the disgraced ex-president who tried to overturn the will of the American voters deserves to be the de facto leader of the GOP. Walk my listeners, if you would, through how this all plays out should the Republicans end up retaking the majority in next fall's midterm elections. Should we expect you know, Stalinesque reprisals, people being locked up, and Trump is a kind of parallel president? Yeah, that's exactly what you can expect. And it's going to be worse than Trump as a parallel president. Uh, you know, I've said this a hundred times in the last oh, eight or nine months. It was Johnson of MSNBC who predicted that if they win the House of Representatives this coming November, they will vote Donald Trump in as Speaker of the House. It won't be Kevin McCarthy. They will do it on a voice vote. It only requires the majority to elect anyone to be Speaker of the House. And they said that they would do it to use it as a to humiliate Nancy Pelosi's position. And just the same way that he's tried to humiliate Barack Obama by becoming president and then would use that as a springboard. But imagine this Congress of Republicans changing all the laws to make it harder for minorities, women, and Democrats to vote to validate any law that they want. The Justice Department will be impotent. The Joe Biden, they said it themselves. Ted Cruz said this. They will impeach him every month, right? They want to get him impeached three times so that they can say he's the most impeached president of the United States. We will shift into an authoritarian autocracy. I like to call it a constitutional autocracy, where you have this fig leaf of the Constitution will be applied only to Trump's followers. And then, yes, they will carry out reprisal arrest. They've already threatened to do it. They're saying they want to arrest all the members of the January 6th committee. They want to arrest Dr. Fauci, who saved possibly a million American lives 
when Donald Trump was literally ready to let us let all Americans die. I mean, it, it, it's just absolutely fascinating. Up is down, left is right. The point is, we don't have time for nicety now. All right. The urgency of now means now the ship. Let me give you a military analogy. The ship is on fire. It is sinking by the stern. You have the ability to pump out the water. But the apathy amongst Democrats, because they didn't get this little personal thing and criminal justice reform or Joe Biden didn't get them voting rights because West Virginia, you know, and Arizona stood up against it. So they're not going to vote. So American democracy ends because these people didn't get their little pet peeve. Well, let me tell you, it can get a lot worse. I mean, I did the study for this 130,000 word book. I could have added 50,000 more words just what I found out since last August in this book. These people are armed. They are not joking about becoming the paramilitary of the Trump campaign. They feel they're winning now. All right. And if they do win, then they're going to enforce it. That's right. So now, Malcolm, now you understand why I brought up the whole issue of the Michael Horowitz letter from Ted Lieu and Hakeem Jeffries. Right. We talk about Stalinesque reprisals. We talk about what will happen with this shadow government where they will come, kick down your door, and they will. Now, I know people are saying, get the fuck out of here, Michael. Nothing like that could ever happen. It did happen. It was happening. It happened to me. <laughs> They, they lured me down to 500 Pearl Street. They lured me down there under the guise of having an ankle monitor to put on there instead of up into the Bronx. And they had the marshals tell me to stand up, face the wall, and remanded me back in because I wouldn't waive my First Amendment constitutional rights. That's why I keep bringing it up. That's why I keep saying democracy is in peril. Because what Trump was doing, using me as a fucking test... What do we need to do the next time to ensure that he doesn't get out thanks to the likes of a Judge Alvin K. Hellerstein who saw it correctly in the fact that this was retaliation? What's the difference between retaliation against me versus retaliation against any one of the members of the January 6th committee? What's going to be the retaliation against anyone from the New York Times, Washington right. Post, CNN? I mean, there's, a, you know, there's a, a dozen people that I could put their names down right now that are on Trump's hit right. list. And rest assured, he won't stop because that's who he is. He's sick and he will do everything in his power for retribution. You know, Mike. But I want to ask you this because I do know, I do know, Malcolm, that you're in Kiev right now in the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And then speaking, of course, of misinformation and, dis and disinformation, being that you're currently on the ground in Kiev, in the Ukraine, as the Russian army continues its buildup at the border, if you would do me the favor, explain to my listeners what Putin is doing here to try to provoke an invasion. You know, that's exactly why I'm here. I'm doing an on-the-ground assessment of Russia's order of battle and the avenues of approach that they would take in an invasion and to see, based on my estimation, just how far would they really get? Um, this is not an idle threat. Let's start with that. Let's stipulate that. Uh, even though the situation here in Kyiv is very calm, uh, Ukrainians have been at war for eight years. The streets are filled with bars and restaurants, which, you know, uh, I like to remind people or, or inform people, this city is the size of Chicago. 
It has three million and a half people in this city. And in fact, the downtown is bigger than downtown Chicago. And there isn't this isn't Beirut. This isn't AAA Libya. It's not Baghdad. This is the equivalent of Frankfurt, Germany. It is a modern, advanced city uh, with very nice people. Their Teslas are everywhere. Uh, so this is not an impoverished country by any stretch of the imagination. It's also a gigantic country. It's the size of Germany, Austria, and Switzerland uh, laid on its side. It would take 20 hours to drive end to end. So, you know, or thereabouts. And, you know, that being said, Russia views this place as sort of a breakaway rebel republic that Vladimir Putin, the old KGB communist that he was, thinks is a province of the Russian Federation. Because just because it was it was under the czars, okay, it's independent now. And as one person told me today, a defense contractor told me today, he goes, I'm Russian, ethnic Russian, parents are Russian, we're Ukrainians, and we'll fight for this country. Because it's not based on what language you speak or where you were born. You know, it's like coming to the United States. When you're there, you have a lifestyle, you like it, you want to be part of the Western world. They want to join NATO to have a defense alliance that will protect them against Russia. Russia is not having this. The question is this, Mike. What is Putin's go, no-go uh, decision-making capability? Because here's what will happen. If he attacks this country, even in a limited way, we have already put on the table one boot across the across the border, global economic, you know, economy-killing sanctions will go into place in Russia. And it will have a very terrible, hard impact for the average Russian. But you know, the average Russian, you know, I heard some people say, well, the prices will go up and bread will be harder to get and luxury goods will be harder to get, but you know, at least we'll have our country. Well, you have to justify why you would be invading Ukraine anyway. There is no causes belly here. Vladimir Putin has something going on in his head. And if he thought, I can put all these forces out there and just intimidate the West into turning Ukraine over to us, well, you've been here. Ukrainians have something to say about that. Um, one guy told me a very interesting point this morning. Yes, based on the, you know, the Washington Post report that the Russians could make it if they threw everything at it to the outskirts of Kiev in 48 to 72 hours. But as this one person reminded me, but you'll never take the city. He said they will be dropping flower pots out of these giant skyscraper and apartment block windows. The town has hills and ravines. And, you know, this is where the Nazi massacre of Baba Yar took place. So there's long memories here. But another thing would be the Russians would decide to do a trillion dollars of damage that they would have to rebuild in a country they could never occupy. Because the Ukrainians will be turned into, well, to put it quite succinctly, white Taliban. They will go at this place is an insurgent's dream. Hills, trees, ravines, rivers. You could mine them for years. And lots and lots of lots land. Lots of land. Lots and lots now, of land. You know, right outside of Kiev, you know, right outside of Kiev, you have uh, the Poltava region, right. you have the Chukaska region, you know, which all runs uh, across the Nep River uh, and so on. And, you know, you're talking about, as far as the eye can see, open land. And you're right. 
The Ukrainians would have a lot to say about, you know, the Russians just invading and coming on in. It's not as if that they're not militarily capable. Now, are they militarily capable to fight Russia? I don't think so. And I know that they don't think that they can too. But I agree with you. Financially, this would be devastating to Russia. One of the problems that also exists, Mm -hmm. if you give the Russians, like in the olden days, they gave them cigarettes, they gave them vodka, they gave them bread, sugar, and milk. And they survive. They're tough people, right? If, in fact, that they believe in Putin and what he's saying, they're, they're willing to live on very limited supplies. They've done this before. This would not be new to them. Again, that's if, in fact, they believe in what Putin is trying to do. I'm not so certain that they do. And one of the reasons we don't know whether or not he has the support of his people is because every single poll that comes out that has Putin's name into it somehow has a 92% approval rating. Because again, and I say it a (laughs) hundred times on this show, right? It's something that Trump agrees with. It doesn't matter, right? Who's count, uh, you know, who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the votes. And the same thing holds true for these polls. It doesn't matter what the question is. All that matters is who's writing the result. And then it goes on state-run television, like a Newsmax, an OAN, right? A Fox News that goes on state-run television. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, huh, really? So, so Victor is, or, you know, Sergei, they're all behind, you know, they're all behind Putin. Wow. Um, I guess maybe I should get behind him too. And that's where this misinformation, disinformation campaign is so, is so important to be stopped. You know, I spoke to some people who have parents in Moscow. And what they say is, because there's only one voice that speaks in Russia, and that's the state. It's back to Pravda, you know, uh, you know, essentially all the news media in Russia is Putin's news media. So they all believe that the United States precipitated this, uh, this crisis by flying weapons into Ukraine to be used to attack Russian troops and that the 100,000 Russian troops are going there to defend Russian soil and also to support the Ukrainians who don't want American occupation. I might be the only American here for the most part. But let me tell you something. You made a very good point earlier. Everything west of Kiev, south, you know, west of of, of of Odessa, all the way to the Hungarian, Romanian, and Polish border, that is where the resistance is. And you know what will happen, right? You know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of U.S. Javelin missiles will fall off a truck at the Polish border. And every day in Ukraine that's occupied by Russia, Russian tanks will blow up by the dozens one at a time. And it will be like Syria. It will be a bloodbath. But of course, Vladimir Putin doesn't care about human life. Look what he did in Chechnya. The question is, is he willing to sacrifice every dollar of his oligarchs in the world? Because that's what we're going to do. We're going to seize all that money. Right. We're going to make their their hundred dollar bills they have stashed away radioactive. They'll have to sell them to the Chinese for 10 cents on the dollar. Come on. 
Malcolm, come on, you're too smart for that. You don't think he gives a shit about any of the oligarchs' Isma. money. He's got his own banks in Switzerland. He's the richest man in the world, considering he owns 25% of every single major corporation and every single business that's there. This is what Donald wanted. I don't know why people don't see it. He wants to go to Jeff Bezos and say, hey, fuck nut. He goes, how much, how much is Amazon worth? Right? No, 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 no. I own 25% of it. You know what? Let's make it a cool 50%. Because he can. That's what he wants to do. He wants to go to Elon Musk and say, how much are you worth? No. No. I just took $150 billion from you. Now what? Right? This is what he wants to do. It's the same thing that Putin did. The only difference is, look, do I think it's right? None of my business, to be very honest with you. Right? You know, if... That I leave up to the Russians in order to handle their own government and to handle, you know, Vladimir Putin. You know, not that you could vote him out because it's already pre-known he's going right. to win. But it's there comes a point in time that right now we have to worry about our democracy. Because if America falls as a democracy, rest assured, somebody like Vladimir Putin, who has much bigger ambitions than just being the president of Russia— Right. He has he has some much, much bigger ideas as demonstrated yeah. by what he's doing uh, here in the Ukraine. But I want to ask you this question because it's, it's kind of tied to it and it's important. How much of what's occurring do you think is due to the continued appeasement of Russia and Vladimir Putin by <laughs> Donald Trump and the far right of the GOP? Because I've seen them now praising him again. Right. You're saying, you know, America, NATO, they have no business being over there. And then you turn around and you talk about when Trump met with Vladimir Putin years ago and he turned around and said, I trust him more than I trust. What do you think? We're, we're a bunch of nice guys. We don't kill anybody. Yeah. I mean, this is this is shit coming out of the mouth of the president. You know, there's an old thing that we used to say when we were like in fifth grade and immature as can be. I wonder if Donald Trump's ass is jealous of the shit that comes out of his mouth. (laughs) It is horrible that he could sit there, he could attack our intelligence community, our law enforcement agents, and then turn around and suck up, suck up to an adversary. I mean, this is, this is, Insane, and he should have been removed right then and there from as president of the United well, of, States. Of, of course, Donald Trump is in their pocket. Look, here, here's the sequence of all four books that I've written, and I swore I'd written, never write another Trump Russia book, but here we are. Right, the first one was Plot to Hack America. Right, Times bestseller. I predicted everything that happened in the Mueller report. The Plot to Destroy Democracy, which was Putin's strategy to take over what they did. The evangelicals in the United States support Russia overwhelmingly. The alt-right in the United States was literally manufactured by Steve Bannon, right, who is a who believes in Vladimir Putin's philosophy of neo-Eurasianism and neo-fascism throughout Europe. This is the guy who said, if they call you a racist, embrace it, right? And now is setting the pace for the, the revival of Donald Trump. Uh, The next book was called The Plot to Betray America, right, where I literally wrote how Putin went back and read all the KGB records going back in 2007, right, of who Donald Trump was and how easy it was to buy him. Look, Donald's so stupid that this man thought he could, with a contract to build Trump 
uh, Tower in Moscow could bribe Vladimir Putin with a freaking penthouse. I mean, the man liquidated $200 billion. Yeah, Malcolm, I apologize, but actually that was mine and Felix Sater's idea uh, in terms of, and, and, and by the way, in, nice all fa- in all fairness, in all fairness, Trump, Trump liked the idea. The whole purpose of doing that is because we knew the other Russian oligarchs would want to live on the floor below, 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 below. And you would basically increase the price per square foot by Vladimir Putin having the penthouse. First of all, I thought it was a brilliant idea, uh, but <laughs> but look, I, I hear I hear your your point. Trump believed that he could sweet talk Vladimir Putin into you know um, being a fan, into being like an apprentice fan. Putin is so fucking clever. He's so smart and so devious. Trump is like it, it's it would be like Mike Tyson fighting a toddler in the ring and thinking that there's a chance, even a even a tenth of a one percent chance that the toddler is going to win. Right. By the way, it's it's beyond ridiculous and it's it's hysterical that Donald would think that he could sweet talk Putin. But in all fairness, what he really wants is he wants to be involved in Putin's money. Yeah. Because he knows, I'll never forget, there was a time that we were watching on television and they, sh- they showed um, like four oil tankers going to the left and I think it was like uh, 16 going to the right. And basically what Trump said is that's Putin's cut from, you know, whether it was Sergut Neftegas or Luke Oil or, you know, one of those um, various different companies. And he said, that's power. And I remember now thinking back, hindsight being twenty twenty. that's a fucked up thing to say, right? Basically, you don't own 25% of the oil reserve that's there, unless you're Vladimir right. Putin. But you bring up a point that I just want to mm-hmm. touch on for a second. Why is it that these evangelicals, why is it that this Trump-loving community is so in awe? of Vladimir Putin. And the answer to that, in my opinion, is that Putin is a proxy against this new America's woke belief system that society keeps talking about over, especially when I say society, I'm talking about the GOP, Fox, Tucker Carlson, and others, right? That there's this leftist agenda and it's part of this larger authoritarian axis that's really standing as a bulwark defending traditional white Christian values. That's Mm -hmm. not what Vladimir Putin is doing. That's That's not what he stands for, nor does it make any sense when you're comparing it to what it is that Donald is doing. When I was researching Plot to Betray America, I went to Dresden, Germany, and I went with one of the best, uh, an American scholar on the East German Stasi, which was the East German secret police. That was their version of the KGB. And while he was in Dresden, Vladimir Putin was, you know, a very young baby spy in that town. And unlike the old Russian KGB guys, he loved bringing people over as spies from the West. He loved manipulating people. I sat in his office. I could feel it. He was in this very beautiful neighborhood right down the street from Clara Schumann, the composer and the the performer, you know, and beautiful neighborhood. But at the corner was a KGB, NKVD torture center. 
So he was always in this place where he was covered by the trappings of luxury, but he was really a thug. But he loved manipulating people. So when the Soviet Union collapsed and East Germany went back to the West, he didn't go and fill his car full of sausages and, and, and luxury goods. He went to the East German Stasi headquarters and he took the book of every person that they had turned into a spy so that he could manipulate them when they went over to the oligarchy, right? When they went over to, to Russia. So why am I telling this story? He did the exact same thing to the evangelicals in the United States. It goes deeper than the current awoke. Back in 2010, the big talk amongst evangelicals, and Trump said it himself when he went to Poland, was this belief that Islam and Christianity were engaged in a clash of civilization. Samuel Huntington's philosophy of the class of civilization, which was really supposed to be North and South axes. But Osama bin Laden was the one who believed that Islam and Christianity would come together in a major clash. Putin convinced many of the American evangelicals of this by starting to hold conferences in Moscow called the Protection of Christianity Conferences. And he held it for years. And some of the most extreme evangelicals went over there. Uh, Franklin Graham is a friend of Vladimir Putin and brought it into the mainstream. And they saw Russia as a white Christian ally to American evangelicals, essentially, to fight Islam. And that's, a, and, and you know, now add to that what you said, the current family values, wokeness, it's just literally a pile of bullshit that they're throwing new things onto like a pile of books, which they will set fire to someday. But they, it's weird. They love Russia. They think, it, it, they think of Russia as a natural ally in America the 65% of people that don't support Trump as enemies. And this is a Russian and a Democrat. I mean, I got one on Etsy. You can buy these things. You can't, you can you can't, you can't make, you can't make that shit up. But you know who said something very funny about it and you retweeted it? Um, uh, um, Ellie Mistal, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, he turned around at some point, he writes, at some point, this country is going to have to reckon with the fact that a lot of white people like listening to racist, misogynist dickheads telling them what they want to hear. Like, the problem is not really the racist, misogynistic dickhead. The problem is their yes. audience. And he's 100% correct. You know, and shame on Franklin Graham. And shame on, and, I'm, and I've met them all. I'm the one that brought the evangelical community through, you know, through my friends, the Falwells. I brought them to Trump. And they were interested in Trump when they finally realized that, like you once taught me the term, he's a useful fucking idiot, <laughs> right? He's a useful idiot, and they realize that they can get people on the Supreme Court if he wins, plus that they can also overturn Roe v. Wade, which are two things that are extremely important to them. But let me just move on for a second here. What we've learned in recent weeks from the January 6th committee is that none of this was just this bullshit bombastic talk by a few crazies like Sidney Powell, Mike Flynn, or Rudy Colludi Giuliani. There was actually a real plan to overthrow the 2020 right. election and the will of the people, as well as a plan for a violent, domestic insurgency once those plans failed. 
How is that after all that's been revealed? Because there's thousands and thousands of hours now of testimony and tens of thousands of documents. How is it that after all that's been revealed, that we're still no closer to Trump actually being indicted or punished in some way? I, I don't I don't understand it. With this latest crop of information, plus all of the folks who are giving that testimony, what do you think of the chances that we'll see this come to pass? Zero. I'm being frank, because that again, if the Republicans win in November, all they have to do is win five seats. And they've already gerrymandered at least five seats for them to win. And if the Democrats have the apathy that they have right now in that they didn't get what they wanted, so Joe Biden didn't get them voting rights, therefore they're not going to vote. OK, what you're going to get is far worse than you could ever imagine. Merrick Garland is an institutionalist, the same way that Robert Mueller was chosen because he would be a slow drip, drip, drip institutionalists and propaganda could wave and wash over anything that he put out that was the truth. All of that will be thrown right into the burn bag, as we say in my community, uh, the minute the Republicans take power. But should Donald Trump be prosecuted? Sure. How come a special counsel hasn't been appointed? I mean, a special counsel was appointed once before for the Trump-Russia scandal. Okay, the counterintelligence component of that scandal was never investigated. Whether he was actually in the pocket of Vladimir Putin, never investigated, right? They said, yes, he knew Russia was doing things in his interest. Yes, he benefited from it. Yes, they took what they got. But the question is, well, you know, Donald Trump was under their surveillance. Then he went to Russia in 1998. And at the same time, he was talking about running against George Herbert Walker Bush. When Vladimir Putin first heard about Donald Trump for the most part in 2013 for Miss Universe, there was a KGB file a mile long on this guy, a psychological profile worked up. Of course they backed this guy because KGB strategy is always go after the greedy the narcissistic, and those people who are willing to betray their own country to do your bidding. So Donald Trump is a classic character for them to have recruited. But no one seems to be interested in looking into it, even though the evidence of that is all around. He, he left it out in plain sight, not to mention his day-to-day -day criminality, which we all saw with our own eyes. By being an institutionalist, by saying, well, I'm going to take a year or two to take a look into this, or this is too political, maybe we shouldn't do it. You are hammering the nails in the coffin of democracy. Then why? Why is Joe Biden sitting back? He may be older, right? He may be, you know, a little bit tired, but he's not dumb and he knows exactly what's going on here. He's fucking his own party. He's fucking his own legacy. And what will ultimately happen? Legitimately, the very same day that the House uh, takes control by the, by the Republicans, they will start filing articles of impeachment against him. They'll file it for Afghanistan. They're going to file it for Hunter Biden with, with his um, representation of that energy company. They're going to file it for COVID. They're going to file it for the fact that he 
put a cat in the White House. And it doesn't make a difference because they're going to pass it. And they're not going to wait for Democrats to sit there and to engage in counter-argument and putting it on. They're going to be like, listen, Democrat, fuck you. We control the House. Your guy is now a lame duck for the next two and a half years, give or take. All right, we're not going to allow anything to happen. It's the most defeatist attitude ever. It's like I became a congressman in order to fuck up my own country because everything today is a zero sum. It's a zero sum game. For me to win, you have to lose. And if you win, that means that I lose. And it's party versus party, basically a it's like a knuckle brawl, you know, that's going on and somebody has to die at this, at, you know, at, during the fight. And it's, it's crazy. And what Trump is doing here, really, it's criminal. It's absolutely criminal because he's the one that's out there empowering, empowering these people to act like the assholes that they are. Well, and this, can I give you a phrase? Look, it's a you know, I try to get people, I try, yeah, but Malcolm, I try to, I try to get people energized. You know, and I want to hit the road and start really seeing people face to face so that they could understand we are at a precipice right now of losing our democracy. And again, if we lose our democracy, you could imagine what's going to happen in the world. Vladimir Putin will take over. The first thing that he would do when you see a weak America, he moves 100,000 troops to the Ukraine. Right now, they're going to say, oh, this is all about Joe Biden. Joe Biden fucked this one up. It's not true. This is all remnant of the fact that Donald Trump placated everything that Russia was doing to the detriment of all of our allies. Well, you know what? The best way to put this is the Republicans have become a party of saboteurs and fifth columnists. OK, they don't represent the United States anymore. They represent raw, unabashed exercise of power. And where Joe Biden, and I, I got to tell you, maybe that's, you know, it's, it's part of where Barack Obama got his, you know, got his strategy from. In trying to be the president of all Americans, you still have to be the leader of the Democratic Party, which means you have to mobilize the Democrats. You can't sit around and let one or two senators lie to your face and tear apart your entire agenda? I mean, Kirsten Cinema. I understand Joe Manchin, but Kirsten Cinema. I wonder if she's a Republican plant, right? She literally thumbs down raising the minimum wage to $15. And she ran as a liberal progressive Right. She railed against the, you know, the, the filibuster. But now she upholds the most racist tool in the Senate. So, you know, the leader of the party's got to get up and leave. And I know he's good old handsome Joe. And I know he wants to be nice to everybody. But like you said, we're in a bare knuckles brawl and they yep. will, you know, finish the fight, you know, with a mortal fatality. And the fatality will be not just the Democratic Party, because we'll never be back in power ever again if they rig all the elections. It will be American democracy will shift to a fascist ideology, a constitutional autocracy. Yeah. You know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see, you know, they have that that league now, bare knuckle brawl. 
you know, you ever see they have it on, uh, so you see it a lot on uh, the internet, but they, they're actually, they have events now. I'd like to see Trump <laughs> against Joe Biden. That would be, that would be a good bare knuckle brawl. And the winner, and the winner gets to send the other one out of the country to where my money would be on Joe Biden for that one. But I want to ask you this, Malcolm, because there have been talks that, you know, Trump's call, <laughs> it's funny, right? There, there have been talks that Trump's calls for protests could lead to armed camps popping up in places like Atlanta, New York, um, you know, in D.C. and so on and elsewhere. What are your sources, because you're really connected into this, what are your sources telling you is happening on the ground as this next wave of insurgency takes shape at Trump's direction? You know, Trump has only just said that. And prior to this, we monitor right-wing extremist communications. We monitor the Telegram channels. I go to some very bizarre forums that you wouldn't think about, right? Gun forums and, you know, uh, you know the besides the patriot.win, right? That used to be the Donald.win. And just to get an idea of what the most hardcore supporters are, because they're the ones who are driving the agenda right now, okay? And if many of them had their way, because they met huge numbers of them believe in QAnon. QAnon ideology, the ideology of genociding all liberals through the storm and the day of the rope, uh, hanging people from the light poles, they love that thought. The use of violence, which is why I wrote this book and called it straight to your face. They want to kill Americans. That's what they want. And if they were given their way, they would. I suspect that as we start coming up towards the election and if the Democrats gain any momentum, they're going to get angry. And they're not they're, they've gotten to the point where they're not particularly happy about voting because they were told that voting is all rigged and Donald could win uh, without the Democrats rigging the election. And that's where you're going to get. And I'm afraid that there will most likely be a precipitating violent event preceding this election and they're going to be very happy in june when roe versus wade is overturned but someone somewhere um you know based on the the way that these people are talking like the guy up in uh, oregon or no uh idaho who said when do we start killing people they view guns not as a tool as a hammer in the toolbox they view guns as a war hammer you should be killing your neighbor with and they want, it's no longer a totem item. It's no longer an icon or something you plunk with. They now believe they want, you know, none of them serve in the military, most of them. They want to use them, though. They don't want them just in the house in the safe. They now want to dress like they did on January 6th and start killing individuals. And I suspect that at some point we're going to miss something. And there will be an act of domestic terrorism in which many Americans are killed by firearms. And that will be the herald for both sides. Democrats will suddenly wake up, but it will be the other side yeah. who goes, this is the event that brings us to the second American revolution. And we will have the groundwork for civil war. I totally agree with you. You know, Malcolm, as I said to you and I say to all my guests, the hour goes by very, very quickly because it's the topics. The topics are just so relevant. And yeah, the time goes by quickly. I have mm -hmm. one last question for you. On Friday, 
Pundits were treated with a dose of political whiplash as we saw Mike Pence finally, finally stand up, right? I guess, you know, his, I guess his balls dropped or something. And he made a statement against Donald Trump. And he said he was wrong in thinking that Pence could or would overturn the 2020 election results, which followed almost immediately by the RNC censor of Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. Now, what is the average person to make of these, you know, two rather extraordinary moments which came back to back? Because one of them, right, the, represents at least the hope that there are some guardrails left within our democracy, while the censor of Kinzinger and Cheney was really a look into the political abyss as the GOP officially became the party of the insurrection. Discuss this with me. Well, first off, I'm gonna, we're, we're, we're going to have to stipulate some things, and it's, it's terrible that I have to say it. The average American doesn't care what either side is saying. They've, they've been placated quite well, right, to worry about, you know, who's on the mass Singer or what's going on in the Super Bowl. But this is where the Republicans excel at using Russian-style disinformation strategies. For every bit of truth that comes out, they launch a blizzard of lies. The RNC statement for censure, where the first sentence was that they were going to defend the Constitution, they literally argued in the censure that an attack on democracy which could have killed the vice president of the United States, the speaker of the House, uh, the Senate pro tem, the speaker of the House of Representatives, which would have incapacitated or killed them, would have decapitated the United States government that night and left Donald Trump alone as the sole person in power in America. Most people don't realize that, that the three leading other three people who would have taken over as president in any capacity could have been incapacitated or killed. And the United States government would have been a dictatorship that night. So Mike Pence coming out and finally saying what he wow. says next week, he'll probably flip flop back. Republicans have no shame. They have no, they don't care about hypocrisy. They use it as brush fire. And then when you try to set a little backfire to stop it, then they go out and they get an oil tanker of fuel and set it all around, you know, and burn everything to the ground. This is we are in very serious trouble because here's another thing. The news media like The New York Times and other outlets don't seem to think the end of American democracy is something they should report on until the day before the election. It is so clear what's happening here. Look, Michael. Two years ago, I was invited to the Auschwitz Foundation in crack in, in Auschwitz, Poland, to talk about uh, the conference that they had was called Never Again. Really? And it was about the trend of autocracy around the world was making the possibility of genocide, particularly the United States leaning in with Russia, a reality. And they had people from Rwanda and Bosnia, Herzegovina and Holocaust survivors trying to warn us that the way the world is trending under Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and Erdogan and and Bolsonaro, it's going to bring there won't. It's like never again. It, it, it wasn't even a saying. These people, a man wore a Camp Auschwitz T-shirt to the insurrection. 
they believed that George Soros was funding Antifa and should be murdered. It's all about their insane ideology, deranged ideology is what I call it in the title of my book. And it has consumed the Republican Party. You know, you have to turn around. You do, though, have to give credit, as I always do on this podcast. People think this is an anti-Trump podcast. It is not. We just we just tell the truth. We call the truth the truth. No more innuendos. You know, hence nothing but the truth. But you got to give Mike Pence credit, despite the fact a little bit too late, in my opinion. But here's a line from him under the Constitution. I had no right to change the outcome of of our election and Kamala Harris will have no right to overturn the election when we beat them in 2024. Now, that's okay, right? You know, he's a Republican and he was the vice president and he could push for his party's electoral win in 2024. Mm -hmm. But everything that says in that line is so appropriate to what we're seeing right now. Trump doesn't give a shit about the Constitution. He doesn't care the fact that he would still be president simply because people wanted him or because he wanted to be it. Mike Pence is spot on on this one because if in fact that that happened, right, um, Kamala Harris could then turn around now and say, you know what, that's not how it works. I alone have the right to not validate the determination of the election, whether it's free and fair or what have you, right? That's what that's what he's saying. So he's a forward-thinking guy, whereas Trump just doesn't think at all. But Malcolm, let me thank you as always. I appreciate your time. I know you're in Kiev right now. There's some great restaurants over there. Um, oh, yeah. Enjoy it, um, you know. But be safe. You know, there's um, obviously I don't have to tell you what's going on. You're right there, knee deep into it. So please stay safe. And I hope to have you back on the show again really, really soon. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Malcolm. And now for today's mea culpa. In speaking with Malcolm Nance, it's hard not to be fucking frightened by the coming insurgent storm. With last week's censor vote, it's clear that the GOP has abdicated itself to dark authoritarian forces. What's more, Trump's big lie has become the de facto truth for a majority of Republicans. On Tuesday, the Pew Research Center released a new poll that shows how the false belief that Trump actually won in 2020 overlaps with skepticism about both Trump's role in the day's violence and the efforts to understand fully how it occurred. Nearly two-thirds of Republicans polled think that Trump probably or definitely won the election and nearly six in 10 think he bears no responsibility at all for the violence and the destruction that occurred on January 6th. By now, this position is simply an act of faith, a rejection of all available evidence in deference to a feeling. It's still remarkable in scale. The polling doesn't simply capture an aberration or fringe view among American adults. It captures a significant view held by a large portion of the country. It also reflects the views of the most energetic supporters of the person who at this point is the fucking de facto leader of the Republican Party. And they are poised to once again take over the House and possibly the Senate. This boggles the fucking mind. These lunatics have poisoned our country with lies and energetically support political violence as a means to an end. How this will play out doesn't take a rocket scientist. 
every single time we have uncorked these lunatics from the bottle, the country tilts more and more towards permanent chaos. What's at stake now is the very survival of our democratic experiment. The January 6th committee must find its way through the darkness to deliver meaningful accountability. If it fails to do so, we are in for an incredibly dark time. I wish I could find a silver lining here, folks, but I just can't. So let's hope they succeed before it's too late. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. <laughs>